Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 1, Episode 10, Help, How Do I Manage the Students? When I told my graduate students in teacher education I was creating a podcast show about the field of teaching, the number one suggestion they offered me for episode topics, overwhelmingly, was classroom management slash discipline. One of them actually suggested I title this episode, Oh My God, How Do I Make the Kids Be Quiet and Do What They're Told? Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that making kids be quiet and do what they're told is hardly the core of my educational philosophy. But managing a classroom is a huge part of effective teaching. No matter what kind of curriculum or pedagogy a teacher employs, it won't make a difference in a classroom that's chaotic and dysfunctional. Classroom management and discipline issues actually don't constitute the number one reason teachers leave the profession, although I often hear that cited. Um, It's actually around number three or four, and even then it's baked into this larger mix of working conditions. But especially to a teacher in their first few years of practice, and especially at certain challenging school environments or classes, classroom management is a big, big issue. Students need a safe place for learning, defined by clear, understandable, and predictable structures and routines. At all times, they need to know what they're doing, and why they're doing it, and what comes next, and how and where their own voice can be a part of all that. The teacher is the ultimate authority in the classroom, where the buck stops, so to speak. But this doesn't mean that her only tools are the authoritarian reward and punish variety, or that the work of classroom management is hers alone. An effective manager in the corporate world knows when to put her foot down, but also knows her team works best when she leads them, which is a different and more complex practice than dictating when she facilitates their having input and awakens their own ideas and engagement as a part of a community of practice. Too many classrooms, including those we might have experienced ourselves as students, fall into one of the following two extremes. Either the teacher is the only one setting the agenda, enforcing the rules dictatorially, and indeed the only one speaking, unless the student is answering a direct question, or else the teacher attempts to be relaxed and palsy and a friend to students instead of an authority figure. Students in the former classroom may be quiet and well-behaved, but they're less likely to be engaged in accessing their highest potential as learners, nor are they necessarily developing lifelong behavior management skills beyond keeping quiet and doing what they're told, at least when the teacher's watching. Students in the latter classroom likely aren't learning either. That palsy-walsy teacher is probably failing to provide the structure and boundaries that young people need in order to safely learn and grow. In neither classroom are the students necessarily being given any guidance on how to work together productively and manage conflicts among themselves. Spoiler alert, this episode isn't going to be about me recommending that teachers shoot for the middle between these two extremes. Rather, I want to outline the three main areas that teachers need to build competencies in in order to be effective managers and facilitators of a classroom where students are not only safe, but engaged and learning. Those three areas are preparation, intervention, and building relationships and respect. And while a 30-minute podcast episode is no substitute for a course in classroom management and years of experience of the job, I hope it will at least give you, the listener, whether you're a teacher or a parent or just someone remembering their own school days, a sense of what effective classroom management can look like. So, preparation, intervention, and building relationships and respect. Let's talk about preparation first. If you're looking at research on classroom management, A lot of it converges around the idea that the vast majority of issues in classroom management arise because of one of two reasons. Either students are confused and unclear about directions or expectations, they don't have a routine to follow, or they're not engaged by the lesson or the classroom climate. 
They don't have a personal connection to what's being taught, to their classmates, to their teacher. They lack an active role to play, and so they'll tend to find one of their own, one that may not be very conducive to learning. Therefore, effective classroom management must combine clear, consistent, fair, and enforced expectations, routines, and procedures with student voice and input and cooperation in creating and maintaining a community of learners. The more work the teacher invests in setting and establishing norms, either by herself or with student contributions and input, the fewer problems she'll encounter later. Harry and Rosemary Wong's classic classroom management text, entitled The First Few Days of School, is all about just that, the first days a teacher meets their new students and how those days should be filled with laying out the rules and expectations and routines for the class. It might be tempting for a teacher to jump right into teaching academic content. After all, there's all this pressure on them to cover so many learning standards that they don't want to waste any time. But time invested now produces huge dividends in time available for learning later, in the form of class time that isn't wasted by trying to corral the students and bring them back on task. Teachers will want to use these days to specifically and explicitly teach vital classroom procedures such as how and where to get materials and put them back, how to pass out and collect work, the procedure for leaving to use the restroom, whatever the policies are around food or drink or cell phones, norms for discussions, for group work, for taking quizzes and tests. You can't expect the students to follow them if you don't teach them precisely what you're asking of them and how to do it, and then have them practice it at least a few times. I have even on occasions marched my entire class out of the room and back into it several times during the first few days of school until they master how to do it in a calm, respectful, and well-organized manner. Some of these rules and procedures are probably best if the teacher just lays them out, but when it comes to less tangible classroom norms, the shared philosophies and beliefs that undergird everything the class will be doing, getting student input here is very important. What do the students want out of their classroom environment? Sure, some might make cracks about no work or you never calling on me, but sooner or later, kids are going to start saying things like, I want it to be safe. I want us to listen to one another. I want us to show each other respect. I don't think any teacher or students would disagree that a respectful classroom is a good thing, but a teacher must be careful. They can't just say a norm is be respectful without breaking down in specific concrete terms exactly what behaviors do and don't show respect. It's helpful for the teacher himself to do this ahead of time, as many of us have an organic sense of what respect is, but we don't always take the time to break it down into its component parts, even for our own understanding. Once the teacher does this, hearing what component parts the students feel constitute respect is a valuable exercise. In areas where your understandings overlap, let's say, not hitting anyone, terrific, because if a student says it and everyone agrees to it now, it has much more authority than if it was just one more directive handed out by their teacher. In other cases, though, the students might not all agree upon what signs of respect are. Eye contact, for example. In some cultures and families, it's considered respectful, but in others, it's not. Same with interrupting and over-talking. Some people see it as rude and disruptive. Others see it as a way of showing agreement and support. At the end of the day, the teacher still has the final say. Allowing students to throw objects at each other, even if the kids all agree it should be permitted, is not a good idea. But to the extent to which students can create norms and conditions that they personally value and that are phrased in a way that makes sense to them, that's money in the bank when it comes to their buy-in. The teacher can then draw on that when the kids step out of line. Not if, but when, because they're kids, and kids test and challenge. Now the teacher can say, hey, kids, you yourselves developed these norms, and now you're breaking them, so here's the consequence. Also, just asking for their input and incorporating it 
sends a universally recognized message that the teacher respects them, their experience, their values, their input, and that even if the teacher doesn't agree with them 100% on everything, the teacher is willing to incorporate something of their contributions to the class. It's sad how rarely teachers show their students that kind of respect, and many students really appreciate it. It buys you a lot of goodwill. Whatever the five most important rules or norms are can be posted in class for everyone to see, and an easy thing for the teacher to point to physically when a student steps out of line. Look, this here is the rule or norm you're not observing. Of course, some norms, either that the teacher creates on their own or that the students create with them, might just not wind up working in practice. Maybe having a bathroom pass, even a laminated one, just isn't cutting it because it gets crumpled or lost too often. Maybe having discussions where no one raises their hand makes for too much chaos. Or vice versa, maybe asking for raised hands just results in a lot of uncomfortable silence. In cases like this, the teacher shouldn't be afraid to publicly revise some of those norms and procedures. Maybe with student input, maybe not, but revise them nonetheless. Some teachers think that any admission that something isn't working in their classroom is a sign of weakness, but really, it's the brittle teacher unable to adapt to a situation that clearly isn't working that comes across as fragile and incompetent to a student. So once again, the most effective way to deal with most behavior problems is through prevention and planning early on. Still, the teacher will always have some disruptive behavior because kids test, kids present with and encounter serious problems. What does the teacher do then? When intervening with problem student behavior, effective teachers recognize that not all classroom problems have the same cause or merit the same response, even if they look very similar. A teacher engaging with students who are exhibiting problem behavior needs to do two things. One, immediately intervene to stop the behavior in a way that is least disruptive to the ongoing business of class. And two, play detective to find out why this problem is happening. Only once the teacher knows the why can she really effectively respond to that problem. Author and educator Carol Miller-Lieber has created a useful typology of problem behaviors to help teachers with just this challenge. I'll summarize them here. The first category of Liebers is procedural infractions. This is when a student is unprepared for class, or doesn't have the necessary materials, hasn't completed the assigned work, or is otherwise not following classroom routines properly, in a way that winds up being disruptive to the class. That's a little different from her next category, off-task behaviors. This is when a student isn't focused on the activity. Maybe they're doing work for another class, or they're texting, or talking to a neighbor, Maybe they're making distracting motions or noises, or using inappropriate language, but not with a hostile intention. This is more of the muttering curse words under your breath as opposed to flinging them at a classmate. Next up the list is non-compliance. That's when a student outright refuses to participate, says no when a teacher asks them to do something, or just stays silent and folds their arms. Maybe they can't resolve personal differences with others, or maybe they're even taking deliberate action to sabotage the class or make it veer off track. Lieber's next category, impulse control problems, covers those times when a student can't seem to stop interrupting others or has outbursts or inappropriate responses in class. Maybe they can't stay in their seat or get up and leave class without permission. They might misuse or even destroy property in an act of frustration or anger. Most serious is what Lieber calls active aggression, when a student verbally or physically expresses hostility to others or to the teacher, engages in an act of intimidation or bullying or harassment, deliberately provokes or annoys others, engages in highly argumentative speech, maybe lawyering up with the teacher, or walking away when the teacher or someone else is speaking to them. These are all categories or types of behavior problems, but any one of these behaviors can have all sorts of different causes. Maybe a student is confused about procedures. 
Maybe the student's having trouble understanding the material or following directions. Maybe there's a learning gap where the student doesn't understand the material or instructions or is having difficulty completing or understanding the directions. Maybe they're feeling underconfident or overwhelmed. And for most students, being seen as disruptive or bad is still preferable to being seen as stupid or incompetent. It's possible that a student's physical needs, hunger, sleep, safety, aren't being met either in or outside of class. Maybe the student's having problems in another area of their life. Maybe they're being bullied or are breaking up with their partner, are fighting with family members at home, or maybe are concerned about a family member suffering a serious illness. None of these are excuses for problem behavior. But without knowing the cause, a teacher risks treating all problems as nails and intervening with a hammer, as opposed to picking a screwdriver or a lug wrench or whatever other tool might better suit the occasion. What are some of the tools a teacher can use in each of these situations in the moment just to interrupt and stop the behavior first before that careful and time-consuming detective work begins? Well, if students seem confused about procedures, the teacher can help the student either one-on-one -on -one or ask a classmate or maybe even go over with the whole class to review and understand what they're supposed to be doing. Remember, rehearsal and practice is key for classroom procedures. Sometimes students are being wiseacres when they say they don't understand, but Often they're being honest, even if they do sometimes abuse that confusion and use it as a chance to socialize. If students do know what they're supposed to be doing, but they're just off task, proximity is a wonderful tool in a teacher's arsenal. Often just walking up close to a student's desk while continuing the rest of the lesson uninterrupted is enough to make them put that phone away or stop talking to their neighbor. Never underestimate the power of a glare. This is one of the biggest reasons why I always tell my teacher candidates, don't hug the front of the classroom. Walk all around. Be in motion. Not only does this help you keep track of all the goings-on in your class, especially in that back row where students think you can't see them, but it also sends the message that the locus of instruction can potentially be anywhere in the classroom. There isn't just a front of the room where the teacher's pets sit, and the back where you can goof off and tune out. Walking around the room is sometimes the only way a teacher can meet the requirements of students who have individualized education plans requiring them to be seated close to the locus of instruction. If you've got 10 or 12 such students in a class, you can't have them all in front of the room, so make sure that the front of the room can be in multiple places. You might need to prompt a student, remember, what are we supposed to be doing right now? Or even offer choices. Okay, so it looks like you forgot your book. You can look on with a classmate or go to the back of the room and get one of the spares. If the off-task behavior persists, then it might be time to advance to more serious consequences, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Non-compliance and impulse control problems can be some of the most challenging. They're the ones with the most potential to bring class to a screeching halt, interfering with the learning of everyone. For that reason, getting into head-to-head -head wars of words with the offending student isn't a good way to go. Backed against the wall and on display for their friends, the student may escalate the behavior, disrupting class even further and bringing down much bigger consequences on their heads in the end. As hard as it is, the teacher needs to remain calm. The more agitated the student is, the calmer the teacher needs to be and either quietly one-on-one, -on -one, or through giving the student a note, or some other surreptitious means if at all possible, tell the student they need to stop doing what they're doing, and what they should be doing instead. If the student persists or gets too disruptive, the teacher might need to ask the student to leave the room. The real work here comes later, checking in with the student as soon as possible after class, especially if they've been sent out of the room or to the principal's office, or even checking in during class the next day during a time everyone's working quietly and figuring out with the student what the heck is going on. Especially with younger students, the student might not even know or be able to articulate why they're engaging in the disruptive behavior. 
a conversation with parents or guardians or the school guidance counselor or other teachers who have had the student in class might be in order. Ultimately, you and that student are going to need to work together to develop a plan to stop the behavior and develop replacement behaviors. Say, from now on when you're frustrated, Mary, don't throw your book on the ground. Take some deep breaths, count to 10. Take a two minute walk in the hall and then come back and try again. Or ask me for help. It's not a quick and easy process. It takes feedback and coaching and a lot of two steps back for one step forward. But the idea is that you and the student aren't enemies. You're on the same side here and the enemy is the problem behavior that you're working to fix. You'll still need to do this planning and detective work with disruption that takes the form of active aggression, but first you need to interrupt it immediately and the consequences are more serious. Your work to learn the nature of why the student is behaving like this might well be taking place now in a detention room or in the guidance office, and the cause might not be something you have any ability to affect, but you need to make it clear that there'll be zero tolerance for aggression in class. That student's right to be in class doesn't supersede the rights of their classmates to a safe environment. Disciplinary measures for active aggression shouldn't totally be up to you as the classroom teacher to figure out how to respond. This is where vice principals and other administrators might get involved, or a school handbook will guide your responses. I can't speak for every school administrator, but most would likely say that these are the kinds of situations you should call them in for. A teacher who sends a student to the principal's office every time she forgets a book or talks to her neighbor in class is demonstrating that they really can't hack classroom management. Outsourcing discipline for minor issues not only makes you look bad to your bosses, but also robs you of an important chance to really get to know students one-on-one -on -one and help them with their behavioral education as well as their academic learning. Maybe you think that shouldn't be your job, but these days, it is. And this is honestly the place where you do the work of building relationships with many of your students. Some of the students I've ended up being closest with were the ones I started off keeping after school because they've been disruptive in class. Dealing with that part was never fun but it sometimes paid off big dividends later. Those sorts of interventions show students that you actually give a care about them, even if neither the student nor you really sees it that way to begin with. But let me be clear, when it comes to threats or violence or other acts of aggression, the school's really not paying you to be a police officer, nor are you qualified or safe to try and be one. Call in the actual school safety people to handle those situations. Thankfully, in the lion's share of school environments, those are going to be the extreme minority of classroom management issues you deal with. Some students may even have specific disabilities or conditions that lead to impulsive or even aggressive behavior that is truly beyond their control. But in these cases, what's supposed to happen is that they have aids or other accommodations in place to help you manage them. For the more minor stuff, it's up to you to develop and enforce consequences consistently and fairly. This too is a learning process for students. It teaches them vital lessons about cause and effect. And part of how we understand the basic operations of our world is through the idea of consequences, that every action we take will result in some reaction, either positive or negative. What would you expect to happen if you never did any of your readings or assignments for class? If you knocked over a person in the street in front of a police officer? If you showed up to work every day on time, did your job, and filled out all of your time cards? if you answered all questions on a test correctly. Hopefully, these were relatively easy questions for you to answer. But for so many students, their lives are chaotic. School is sometimes the only place in their life where there is potential for reliable, cause-and-effect structuring of their world. Yet, too often, school appears as random as anything else in their life. Consequences in a classroom are... Consequences in a classroom provide a sense of stability and predictability, even if they're not always pleasurable to experience. In a weird way, a classroom with clear consequences can be empowering. It's essentially the message that our actions and choices are what dictate consequences, as opposed to some random turn of events. 
Children, especially those with an external locus of control, need explicit training and practice in the construction of the idea of being responsible for their own behavior and outcomes. And the teacher makes this possible in part by ensuring a classroom has logical and reasonable consequences, positive and negative, based on the choices that students make and the actions they take based on those choices. What do I mean by reasonable and logical? Wang and Wang's definition of a reasonable consequence is one that follows logically from the behavior rather than one that's arbitrarily imposed. And the best logical consequences teach the students to choose between acceptable and unacceptable actions. For example, if you have a no chewing gum rule in your class and you catch a student chewing gum, a logical consequence would be the student has to dispose of the gum. An illogical consequence would be the student now has to do 10 extra math problems. Incidentally, I don't think you should ever assign extra schoolwork as a negative consequence. It reaffirms any suspicions a student might have that work is about punishment and not learning. That's different from, say, asking a student to rewrite a paper that they've turned in with sloppy handwriting. That's a logical consequence. An after-school detention isn't. But having to make up time after school as a consequence for arriving late and missing class is a logical consequence. You see how this works. And remember, a teacher should not stop class when giving out a consequence. For minor, non-disruptive infractions, I'm a big fan of the yellow and red card system from soccer. With some classes, I pre-print a yellow card with common disciplinary infractions, like doing work for another class when you're supposed to be doing work in mine, and circle the offending behavior. I quietly give that card out to the student in question as a warning, and if they keep it up, then they get a red card with a particular consequence that I've circled, a consequence that I follow up with on my own schedule, as soon as it makes the most sense. I don't stop the class, but all the other students can see that card go down on that desk and they know I've intervened. That makes them feel safer and just might persuade others to get back on track too, or at least get sneakier about whatever they're doing. Do students ever push back? Of course they do. It's a classic student tactic to accuse you of picking on them when you give them a consequence. And when, not if, this happens, don't argue. Don't ask the student if they're questioning your authority. Certainly don't raise your voice. Repeat like a mantra, because this is the rule that you chose to break. This is the action that you chose to take, and this is the consequence for it. Using that word chose implies that a student is responsible and accountable for their actions. And certainly, don't neglect to do this with positive consequences also. The obvious positive consequences for students doing a good job in class are good grades. Are students earning consistently high grades on daily quizzes this week? Maybe they get a break from today's quiz as a positive consequence because they've shown you they're keeping up with the work. But I have found some of the most powerful positive consequences just consist of small words of praise, usually one-on-one -on -one so the students aren't embarrassed. Hey, you really nailed that test. Your hard work paid off. Or, I can see how far you've come in terms of arriving to class prepared, and I wanted to acknowledge that. I'm proud of you. Again, the idea behind consequences of any sort is that students have the power to bring good things or bad things upon them based on the choices that they choose to make. Now, sometimes students will need support in making those choices. I'm going to draw here on the work of Jessica Minahan as I remind you of what I said a few minutes earlier, that we often actually need to teach students how to make those choices. We teach reading, we teach math, but we don't teach behavior. We just incentivize or disincentivize it. I might say, bake a cheesecake. You'll get $50 if you do, or you'll get thrown in jail if you don't. But if I haven't taught you how to bake that cheesecake, you're kind of up a creek. Sometimes what we see as non-compliance is really an issue of competence. The student just doesn't know how to do yet what we're asking them. 
Now you can argue all you want that students should have learned to manage their own behavior at home, that it was their family's responsibility, but that's immaterial. The students you have in your classroom often haven't learned these things, for whatever reason. And if you want a classroom that runs smoothly, where learning can take place, then you're going to have to teach some behavior management as well. Some of these skills that Minahan says teachers have to teach are initiation, how to begin an activity, especially one which might be anxiety-producing or otherwise undesired, persistence, how to stay on task when patience wanes, when frustration sets in, etc., help-seeking, how to ask for help without feeling like you're presenting yourself as somehow stupid. Remember, most kids would rather be thought of as bad than stupid, and that is the root of so many disruptions in class. Minahan is a big fan of what's called the functional hypothesis, that behavior, even disruptive behavior, serves a purpose, which is why, consciously or not, kids do it. What might be some purposes for disruptive behavior? Well, one is escape or avoidance. You want to avoid anxiety or unpleasantness, even though it might manifest itself as opposition. If you tear up a quiz and get sent to the principal's office, hey, at least you avoid having to take that quiz you were stressing about, for the moment anyway. Disruptive behavior could serve the need of sensory stimulation. Maybe you're bored or otherwise in need of something to get you fired up and, hey, throwing a pencil at Jane across the room is gonna make something interesting happen. Maybe you want attention. And negative attention is in many ways more predictable and efficient than positive attention. Think about it. If you do something bad in class, the response from an effective classroom manager will be efficient, predictable, obvious, and sometimes dramatic. But if you do something positive, maybe you'll get praise, but that's often a double-edged sword. It might get you embarrassed in front of your peers or targeted for teasing. Completing all of your work ahead of schedule might get you the reward of more busy work to do. Doing everything you're supposed to might get you ignored by the teacher, categorized as, all right, she's fine, let me focus on the others. If you want to stand out, time to do the disruptive things. And teachers feed right into that. If they confront the student and get into that war of words, it can raise the energy and provoke escalation. But if a teacher simply ignores the behavior and hopes it goes away, that can also provoke escalation. The student will just keep raising the stakes again and again until you can't ignore that behavior anymore. And even if you somehow do, the other students aren't going to. You're going to lose control of that class. Minahan says the goal for a teacher is to make positive attention compete better with negative attention. This could be quiet praise, or this could also be something along the lines of what a colleague of mine did that I've totally stolen the idea from. He asked the students at the beginning of every year, when I'm proud of you, when you've done something terrific, how can I let you know? Some students might want the public praise. Some students might not want any attention at all, or all kinds of things in between. Particularly needy, attention-seeking students can sometimes also be served with a teacher tells them, okay, in five minutes, I'll come back and do X. Then in 10 minutes, I'll check in with you about Y. And if I forget, tap me on the shoulder or raise your hand. At least it gives the students some avenue to pursue besides causing a ruckus to get your attention. I may tell a student, I don't have time to talk to you right now, but please write this down and pass me the note and I'll get to it as soon as I can. Sometimes when I can tell a disruptive student has backed themselves into a corner by escalating the situation, I might try and change the tone of the conversation at random. I might say, tell me a joke, or make some other distraction. Every now and then it really does knock them out of that cycle. Look, there's no one-size-fits-all intervention with anything. Students are different people and every situation is unique. But the big point that Minahan and I am making here is that if you limit a student's options to either immediate compliance or immediate non-compliance, you're limiting your problem-solving options as well. 
A really common place where classes tend to go off the rails is during transitions from one activity to another. There are ways to scaffold and buffer these times in class. The most obvious is giving five minute or one minute warnings. Okay, folks, in one minute, we're gonna put away our books and take out our homework from last night. Just using the word pause versus stop can lower anxiety among students as well. All right, guys, in five minutes, we're gonna pause. This has actually made a real difference in my classroom. A handy phrase that I'll freely admit I picked up from a teacher tube video is, no matter where you are, that's where you need to be. It has worked remarkably well with some of my students who get agitated when time's up, but they feel they haven't completed a task to their satisfaction. If the transition involves reconfiguring the desks in the room in some way, maybe you can show a photo if you have an active board or projector, or else hand out copies of a diagram on a page. This is the goal. This is what the room needs to look like when I call time. For particularly volatile or anxious students, providing what Minahan calls a transition sponge can be useful. An activity like passing out a document or sorting crayons or stacking chairs, anything to give the student a tangible task to focus on while the class is transitioning so they don't disrupt the whole procedure for everyone. So-called graduated transitions are another one of her ideas that I've found has really worked well for me. The idea is that in a given transition, the fewer variables that change at a time, the better. So moving from a computer-based task to another computer-based task, as opposed to from computer to paper and pencil, or when moving from a highly pleasurable activity to a less pleasurable one, don't go directly. In other words, don't stop a fun video and go right to a quiz. That can be too much of a leap for students. Instead, how about transitioning from the fun video to a discussion about the video? and from the discussion to a writing assignment based on that discussion, and from that to the quiz. Divers rise slowly as to avoid the bends, and sometimes your class needs that as well. Okay, so you could devote a whole podcast to classroom management, let alone a single episode of one. So I realize I've hardly scratched the surface of this topic, but I do hope as we draw to a close that I have at least outlined some useful general principles, along with some specific techniques to act on them all backed up by research and experience. With the caveat, of course, that your experience, your mileage, may differ. Every teacher has to develop a system that works based on what's authentic to them and to their students. And if you're a teacher, you know your students much better than I do. The one thing I do think is universal is that a class where the students are genuinely engaged is one with far fewer behavior disruptions. I know it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, as a class full of disruptions isn't going to be very engaging. But if students are genuinely caught up in an activity or a lesson that they find interesting and relevant, that is a more compelling reason to play along with the classroom rules than anything else. Episode 2 of this podcast is all about that. The last thing I'll say is that no teacher, not even the most veteran, is a perfect classroom manager. Teachers are human beings, despite what some of our students might think at times. And all human beings make mistakes. But one thing I absolutely love and value so much about being an educator is that almost always, if the students can tell that their teacher genuinely cares about them, is trying to reach them, is trying to do right by them, it's amazing what mistakes they're willing to forgive. Sometimes the most powerful classroom management tool in a teacher's arsenal is modeling their own willingness to learn and grow from the consequences of their mistakes. Not to get too gushy here, but classroom management can really be a chance to make a better world, at least within the bounds of a single room. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time.
I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great, then you get a treat. Today's education fun fact. Teacher quality is one of the most significant factors related to student achievement. Yet according to statistics from the NEA, in the United States, 14% of new teachers resign by the end of their first year, 33% leave within their first three years, and almost 50% leave by their fifth year. Do what you can to support your local teachers and help them stay. They do make a difference. Bye now.